0: You're,
1: You're listening, listening to, to The MumbrellaCast. The Cast.
2: Cast. Cast. Welcome to The Mumbrela Cast. I'm Damien Francis and joining me this week to break down the news in media and marketing is Olivia Krimmel. Hello. Xander Wilson. Hey Damo. And Callum Jaspin. Howdy. Later in the Mumbrella cast, Xander is going to be talking to Meat and Livestock Australia's General Manager for Marketing and Insights, Nathan Lowe, about how the MLA continues to capture the cultural zeitgeist year after
3: year. Sort of having a, I guess, a good appetite for risk. You know, it's it's smart risk, it's clever risk, Um, and really dancing that, um, the dance to stay on the right side of the line. The
2: importance of giving different voices to lamb and beef.
3: Lamb's always had a personality where we can be very provocative and playful with. The personality of Australian beef is slightly different.
2: And why the MLA will continue to lean into the COVID narrative as
3: other brands avoid it. And so, yes, we probably wouldn't land the same campaign right now, but we would still choose to lean into what's happening and find a uniquely Australian lamb way of, of telling the story.
1: But
2: first, the week's topics...
1: Financial reporting season is upon us with 7 SCA here, there, and everywhere, Enro and Domain dropping results this week. And Optus launches content subscriptions and membership hub, Subhub.
2: Financial reporting season is well underway with several major media and marketing companies declaring results this week. Among them were Seven West Media, Enero, Southern Cross Stereo, HTE, and Domain. A lot to get through there. Uh, Let's start with the big one. Xander, first out the door this week was 7West Media. You covered the story. You also tuned into the uh, virtual conference as well. Uh, Key takeouts from this one?
0: Yeah, so the results presentation from 7West Media saw CEO James Warburton really full of positivity and Probably fairly so. If you look at the raw numbers there, um, Seven reported a 240% increase in net profit after tax. Group revenue rose 3.5% over the financial year to $1.27 billion as well. And there was an, an underlying group EBITDA of 105% too. Uh, there were a few other key interesting points that I really think worth highlighting, I guess, behind this, you know, on the face of a good news story. A few good things, seven plus revenue they reported was up 78%, uh, which is pretty decent considering, you know, these reporting was before the Olympics even kicked off in July. And the Olympics as well was was actually, you know, a big part of the presentation, even though it didn't occur during the financial year, um, it was really front of mind for everyone Seven reported that their Olympics coverage reached 20.2 million Australians, and that seven-plus user base has already risen to 9.2 million registered users. So that's a pretty significant offering for marketers to tap into. But as predicted, the Olympics were a loss for Seven, despite being a a rating success. Um, They were a $50 million loss, um, and that means costs will rise for the 2022 financial year, obviously. The executives at the company, Warburton himself, took home a pretty nice seven point six million dollars for in remuneration for the financial year. Kurt Burnett's was three point two million, and Bruce McWilliam uh, took home two point nine million. I spoke to Nun Media's Chris Walton after the results dropped, um, and yeah, he had a few interesting things to say. He said you could try and argue. A bit of shine off Warburton's gold balls by saying that this if this wasn't the year to produce sterling results internally and externally then when was the year but Chris did say that Warburton does deserve a lot of credit he early on outlined a clear plan with his team behind him and he delivered where it matters, where the programming led to audience success and has driven seven to a commercial share, touching the magical 40%. Uh, In the first, a lot of the first half of the year, it would be hard to imagine that seven would really be, you know, beating nine as it has throughout this week and, and has done over a lot of the last ratings weeks, even before the Olympics, they've kept up that momentum off the back of the Olympics with the voice being the only, um, entertainment format this year to to rate over a million metro viewers in every single episode so far. So yeah, they, they were the key takeouts for me from from Seven.
2: Yeah, it's certainly been a good period for Seven at the moment. Liv, you spoke to a few people in the industry as well. What were you hearing?
1: Yeah, similar to Xander's comments from uh from Matt, it's um it's a bit of a mixed bag actually, because one analyst I spoke to, Patrick Potts at Martin Curie, he said that he, although the results were good, um, the costs, the projected costs for the next financial year, um, an increase in those costs is of concern to him and uh, it'll be interesting whether Seven can outstrip those costs with additional ad revenue. Um, he did, however, also compliment uh, James Warburton on having, you know, restructured and cleaned up the balance sheet as he put it and he said credit should be given for that. Um, but here, yeah, he was very much focused on looking ahead and what the cost uh, for those companies would be going forward and, and how to manage those going forward. He didn't want it to see TV networks return to the bad old days of very low profit margins because the cost of being a TV network was just so high. He did also question the halo effect of the Olympics. He said that he's yet to be convinced by that you know, domino effect from having Olympics or large sporting events and then using those to then launch new content slates. However, contrary to um, Patrick, uh, Steve Allen at Pierman Media said that we were seeing exactly that and and that we had seen it in the past and we'll continue to see it again where networks use those big events as a launch pad for those new um, programs and he said the voice and its current um, super ratings were evidence of that, and he expected that to continue. Uh, he said that Seven's results again were were quite good, and and that those in the industry he had spoken to, an analyst that he would spoken to, were very complimentary of how the network is being run at the moment. Um, he similarly said that James Warburton is ticking every box. Um, were his exact words in terms of turning the the business around and and looking forward, he said that Warburton is being very clever to actually. Uh, almost under promise on revenue at the moment going forward given the current climate but then also be very realistic about those costs and so it's almost doing uh, him a favour by you know flagging to the market early that costs are going up but not over delivering on what their revenue might be off the back of really good ratings such as The Voice.
2: So another of the big announcements uh, was in the radio landscape at two ASX listed radio networks, ht ARN and uh, Southern Cross Austereo uh, announcing results as well. Uh, key takeouts there, Xander, any patterns in the narrative that, that the two were spinning?
0: Yeah, so first cap off the rank uh, from the radio networks was SCA, who reported their results on Wednesday. Um, just in the, the pure number to start with, they had a two point two percent fall in revenue to five hundred ninety one point one million, which is a pretty solid recovery for them after a fifteen point nine percent fall in revenue at the half year mark. Where the figures start to get interesting is their net profit after tax, which was reported at was at forty eight point one million, a ninety one point six percent increase. Um, at, it's interesting to look at the fact that in the financial year, um, SCA did still receive $31.9 million worth of JobKeeper. So if you were to take that away from that $48 million or so in profit, the numbers would look quite different. Now, outside of those main numbers, there were a few interesting tidbits. From, from yesterday, including the announcement of a provisional deal for SCA to contribute to Google News Showcase. So they're the latest publisher uh, who look like they're about to sign on the dotted line there. Um, and I spoke to Grant Blackley yesterday afternoon as well, and he said there have been some talks with Facebook, but they're just not as advanced, um, but that the company will, you know, be using this uh, as, as a reason to keep investing in local news and journalism moving forward. Um, and in terms of other takeaways, digital revenue was was a hot topic across both SCA and also ARN. Digital audio revenue is increasing really massively across both. Uh, SCA had a slightly smaller increase, forty percent increase in revenue to fifteen point four million, and that came off the back of. $7 million worth of investment in digital. So they're making their money back and and, and then some in terms of in terms of that investment. And, and the majority of that was in the Listener app, um, their new propriety app. They launched it earlier in the year. Uh, and when I spoke to Grant yesterday, he said that Listener has really hit all its targets in terms of listenership, in terms of downloads. And he, ex- uh, he predicted that the app will experience anywhere up to 100% growth of, over the next year. The next phase, obviously, off the back of that digital rev. Digital revenue and and the podcasting growth is monetization, which which Grant said, you know, it's the part of any marketplace that lags behind consumption. And he admitted the scale just isn't there for advertisers for for the digital revenue just yet. Um, and HTNE and ARN CEO Kieran Davis, I spoke to him this morning, and he agreed with Grant that the scale on digital audio for advertisers just isn't there yet. Uh, ARN's digital uh, audio revenue was up 149% to 5.5 million. And, and Davis admitted that spending on digital is compared to linear, it's still a bit of a niche for advertisers. But, but what he really focused on was that the numbers showed that increased listening and investment in digital audio is coming along complementary to analog. It's not taking listeners and spend away from radio. It's in addition to it. So positive signs there. And just on HTE in general, the, the company recorded a 21% increase in group revenue to 109.9 million. ARN, the radio network rate, uh, revenue grew 22% to 98.5 million. So still the lion's share of the work uh, for HTE being done by the audio segment there. And And as the question normally is, I did ask Kieran this morning, is HTE looking to invest in new business? Uh, he wouldn't rule it out, but one of the interesting things he did say uh, is holding them back. And something he's flagged with me before is that there is still a tax case that they're embroiled in and, and, and part of uh, that's been with the ATO since 2017. Um, and they're keeping cash on hand for if they need to settle that case. So that's something that's potentially going to be holding back their investment in new businesses throughout the rest of the year.
2: And just to put you on the spot a bit there, Xander, in terms of critical mass for digital audiences, did, did either Kieran or, or Grant uh, sort of take a guess at when those audiences might arrive in, in a large enough number to to properly commercialize them?
0: Yeah, so that was a question I put to them. Um, neither of them would put a solid date on you know when we'd start to see... Uh, digital audio really catch up to analog in terms of ad spend and consumption. But what, what what Grant Blackley did say was that in the next twelve months he expects you know advertisers and marketers to really start taking it more seriously as a segment, um, not just as a niche to target really really small demographics, but but to take it quite seriously. And 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 you know he did just say, look, you know if it c- continues to increase exponentially. Eventually, you know, it's going to get to the point where it's not only going to be matching analog radio; it's 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 going to be outgrowing it, and, and the segment's going to be even even bigger. And and on that note, something that Kieran Davis said uh, this morning to me, as as well as that, a lot of the growth that that ARN has experienced in digital revenue has been from people listening to just normal radio, but through all these all their different devices. On digital channels, so people listening to Carl and Jackie O on their tablet through through iHeartRadio and, and and things like that, showing they're both that you know normal radio as it stands is still connecting with people, but but the consumption patterns
2: are definitely changing. And uh, Steve Allen had a few things to say about SCA as well, live right?
1: Yes, he's w- was actually more focused on the uh, regional affiliation. Um, with 10 uh, following the uh, decision by nine earlier in the year to switch to win. Uh, He just flagged that that may lead to a domino effect on their ad revenue for their regional TV uh, business, given that uh, he said that 10's programs would not bring the same demographics um, or numbers that some of the nine programs would and that with those lower ratings obviously comes lower ad revenue and it would also depend on what kind of agreement they had structured with 10 in terms of sharing that ad revenue from the regional um, television uh, broadcast. Uh, he, he just said that although there is some, you know, desirable demographics in those regions for 10 programs, um, he'd be yet to see how that would translate into keeping a similar final number to what they had when
2: they were with nine so let's uh, refocus just slightly now to a, a non-media owner uh, report in enero we don't have the pleasure of uh, too many locally listed holding groups uh, anymore where we can uh, see the results uh, but it was a strong result for ceo brent scrimshaw in his first annual report cal you took a look at that one
4: yeah, I did Damo. I wouldn't say that there are any huge major takeaways from this year, aside from the fact that uh, you know, Anero is just continuing that growth. Um, I do suspect that twenty twenty two are the results to look out for um, because it has been a pretty busy year for Scrimshaw since he came in on the first day of the financial year last year. Um, globally, the group saw an 18.3% net revenue increase, reporting 160.6 million with an operating EBITDA of 45.6 million, which was up 87%. Um, this, as I said, uh, is a bit of a continuation of growth for Enero, which has now seen net revenue and EBITDA both rise for five straight financial years. Um, locally, the group posted a uh, net revenue of sixty-five million, up eleven percent, um, with the bit uh, up thirteen point nine percent at thirteen point one million. So, as I said, it's been a pretty busy year uh, as Scrimshaw has really looked to uh, stamp his mark on the group. Um, leadership wise, Carla Webb has been uh, placed in as the CFO of the group. Heather Kernahan came in as the global CEO of Hotwire. Um, just recently, Wei Kwok was appointed as the CEO of Orchid in a bit of a leadership reshuffle there. And then Nick Burton came in as the M&A director, which um, I guess is a pretty key signal for things to come for the group. Um, during the year, BMF uh, was pretty busy uh, with business wins, including Department of Health, Transport for New South Wales, uh, Nine Mastheads, the SMH, the Age and FINN. Um, adding two clients already, including Aldi, Tourism Tassie, and the federal government, uh, and as well as um, rolling out the 2021 census campaign, which uh, I'm sure all of us will have had a fun time filling out last week.
2: Yeah, absolutely, so much fun. Uh, you mentioned there some of the the local wins, but also the chat of global, which is an interesting one here because obviously ASX listed uh, business, but uh, it's got uh, assets in the US and the UK uh, as well. It's a, it's a global business. We've seen some of the results of uh, of those uh, regions uh, as well. Uh, good in the states, not so much in Europe. Uh, however, what happened there, Cal?
4: Well, yeah, as you mentioned there, uh, 55% of the group's net revenue actually comes from its international businesses, um, although Inera is pretty streamlined with its approach. It only has presence in the US um, and some also across the UK and Europe. In the US, um, things were looking pretty good with a 52% growth in net revenue largely down to um, the business OM. Oh, sorry, OB Media, uh, which increased its revenue and, and margins by, you know, be- being an already established digital and e-commerce business um you know with covid there was a pretty a significant change in consumer behavior towards that um in the uk and europe things weren't as rosy uh net revenue was down 5.8% with uh that overall net revenue being 35.5 million this the, in the uk um this was partly down to the the divestment in frank pr um the, the group said that this was you know diverting an area's attention to this areas of expertise um which then resulted in the acquisition of tech sector specialist mcdonald butler associates which was then um fully integrated and bundled into the hot wire business over there and uh, just to round out oh, on an era, of course, BMF took home the
2: Mumbrella Award for Culture at this year's awards, uh, a strong business over here, but what were they looking uh, to in FY22 in terms of growth and opportunities?
4: So as I said there, I think the the the, the key one would be um, looking at that hire of Nick Burton as the group's new mergers and acquisitions director. Um, I think it's, as I said, maybe a bit early to tell what the results will be from all those changes. Um, but looking forward, uh, I guess they, they when they spoke to me last month, but the two, Scrimshaw and Burton, they said they were aiming for sustainable growth um, and this would include scaling up those core and aero brands of BMF, Orchid and Hotwire. Uh, This has included a new approach to investment as well as adding digital capabilities across each of their markets, which they say is paying off. Um, And they also have said that the first six weeks uh, of the financial year have also seen that growth continue and accelerate. Although, as you always uh, remind me, Damo, of course, they would say that. Um, So uh, moving forward... Uh, they want to c- carry on these strong client relationships, um, which will be driving this momentum. And uh, in their reporting, they noted that 60% of their overall client base of the group has been um, on retainer for four years or longer. Um, locally, Burton said that uh, over the next 12 months, there'll be a specific focus at looking at marketing cloud and marketing automation businesses in Australia Um quote, as we see this as an area where digitally focused marketers are seeing increasing need for support. We're going to move off uh, Finn
2: reports now because coming up next, we're going to chat about Optus launching Subhub. This week, Optus introduced a new content subscriptions and membership hub for customers called Subhub. The new aggregator will allow consumers to access and pay for their subscriptions in one location, with discounts offered to customers based on how many subscriptions they have on the platform. Uh, there's a long list of partners that will be available at launch or soon after. There's a long list of partners that will either be available at launch or soon after. Xander, excite me. Who are they?
0: Yeah, so already on board in terms of streaming services, there's Amazon. So that's for Prime Video and also non-streaming related um, customers will get all access to uh, the free Amazon delivery and all those other perks that come with that. Um, And soon to be onboarded onto Subhub, uh, BritBox, Fetch TV, Netflix, Paramount Plus, and IQI. And there are also plenty of other non-streaming partners too, like Aussie news aggregator Inkle, which is a startup, and that'll bring together content from the New York Times, Financial Times, The Guardian, uh, and The Economist. Customers will also get access via Subhub to Wellbeing app Calm, uh, Kindle, and, and, and a bunch of things related to that, and, and also obviously Optus Sport uh, plus the Optus Sport fitness package that comes with that.
2: Okay, so here's my question on Subhub, and I'll disclaim, I'm an Octus customer, uh, so I'm well aware of their apps and their service and and bits and pieces, and I have my own opinions on that, but that's a slightly different matter. Um, They've said there that on average, consumers have 5.5 subscriptions. Now, to get that data, obviously, people already have to have subscriptions. So what do they think is going to happen here in terms of people using Subhub? To get those subscriptions? If people already have 5.5 subscriptions on average, is this not a case of putting something out that is perhaps a little too late into market? In that I myself have probably six or seven subscriptions and I'm with Optus. I don't see myself using Subhub going forward. I've already got the subscriptions. Uh, uh, argue me on that one if you want, Xander. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, you touch on a few interesting things there. I mean, watching the presentation yesterday, um, Clive Dickens, VP of TV, and a bunch of other uh, executives and presenters sort of were, were selling it. And, and, and one of the key selling points, I think, is is just the convenience of having it all in one place. Um, I think Optus do realise that people do have you know a bunch of different subscriptions, but I think the hope is that with all of them in one place, um, you know, you aggravate the 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 paying of the bill through Subhub and all that sort of thing—it's—it's—it's it's, it's about that convenience. And when I first watched the presentation, I, I initially found myself thinking, "Why hasn't anyone done this before?" Especially when they went through all the services and and went through how the new app works. It looks like a pretty decent user experience. And and of course, one of the selling points is that you get a discount, as you mentioned there earlier, for having multiple services. On it, um, but then I came to think about my own subscription services, much like you, which all work on a direct debit basis. I have a single folder on my phone for the apps for each of them, and just cast my TV with Chromecast. So um, maybe I'm not the target for this, but I'm not exactly, you know, jumping on my phone or looking to watch things at night and going, "Oh, where's Paramount Plus? Or where's Netflix?" Like, I, like I know where these apps are, and it's not exactly an inconvenience for me not to be using something like like SubHub. Also, with the amount that each service costs, maybe around 10 bucks, I think at the moment it's so reasonable that I'm not exactly worried about maxing out my cards when they debit through each month. And so I don't really feel the need to be checking when they're going out each month that was another one of you know the things that was highlighted in the presentation you know oh you know we've all got so many things going out wouldn't it be nice to have them all in one place i, I guess maybe but maybe not for me if anything if all my subscription bills came out at once that might be more stressful because you'd have 50 60 bucks go all out at once which i think you know is one of the issues with with the expensiveness of, of Foxtel, you know, in recent years and, and paying for that all in one go, it just feels like a, a big sum of money. I also think what's interesting is that not all the partners are on board yet. So it has now launched. And if you get Subhub, but you have, you know, Paramount Plus, which is just new and Netflix say it's not yet set up to include those. So I'm not sure if people are going to jump on now and get really excited about just accessing Prime Video and Optus Sport through Subhub, but then use their Netflix app separately. It, it remains to be seen what the uptake will be. It's certainly an interesting proposition. And, and you know, maybe maybe there are, I'm sure there are lots of people out there who, you know, maybe have anxiety about when their bills are coming out and, and you know, struggle to keep on top of all the subscription services they have. And And for those people, I think this will be really helpful.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think... That's the, the, the biggest challenge though, isn't it? Because you, you've mentioned there there's services that aren't on there at the moment. Netflix is, is coming, but then there's stuff like Spotify or, you know, Disney Plus or, you know, other services. So it almost feels like you miss one or two key ones and it almost – kind of defeats the, the whole purpose as well. Uh, look, I guess in terms of getting all of that in, in one area, that's kind of what a credit card's for, isn't it? Like you you put all your bills on the one credit card, you get the one bill at the end of each month and, and hey, Presta, I mean, I'm probably sounding like a, a grumpy old man here, but uh, again, as an Optus customer, I, I don't quite see myself using something like that. To your point, I've got all my uh, subscriptions set up already and, um, I don't have to. It's said and forget. I don't have to worry uh, about it anymore. But uh, look, one of the other things that I would probably say is that my personal experience with Optus's technology, particularly the the, the MyOptus app, it's been patchy. Sometimes it's okay. Other times it's it's not great. Small things, for example, like my app won't allow me to change the the, the credit card on it. I have to call someone. But uh, what did they mention there about uh, about technology and investing in, in the technology? Were they were they saying anything about how they've set this up and how confident they are with it?
0: Yeah, I think I think you make an interesting point there with the MyOptus app. Um, I think we were speaking earlier this week. I don't use the MyOptus app, even though I'm an Optus customer, because I find it quite clunky and difficult to use. But on the other side of the coin, I've had Optus Sport for. Probably three or four years, and I find it one of the best user experiences of any streaming app on the market. So it'll be interesting to see sort of which way they go with this. Are they going to go down down the road of of another um, MyOptus app? They did. Um, Demonstrate the app yesterday and it looks like it's a fairly seamless user experience, but it does have a few things that make it look a bit like, like my Optus. So um, clearly the investment in in technology is there and we see that through Optus Sport. We see that through Optus Sport Fitness, which I have used a few times, which is a part of Optus Sport and then, and then Fetch TV. Um, which I've used plenty of times before, is a, is a fairly seamless user experience. So, so I think Optus has shown down the years that it can execute something and make this a really good experience. But I guess the only way we'll find out, Demo, is if we download it and have a go. Tell
2: you what, I'll let you go first and you tell me how you go. Then I'll jump on after that. Coming up next, Xander is going to chat with the MLA's Nathan Lowe.
0: I'm Xander Wilson, and joining me on the Mumbrella cast this week is Nathan Lowe, General Manager, Marketing and Insights at Meat and Livestock Australia. Nathan, thanks for coming on the podcast.
3: My pleasure, Xander. Happy to be here. So the
0: MLA has developed a bit of a reputation uh, for making ads that really tap into the cultural zeitgeist of the time they were made. And before I start, uh, before I sort of pre- prepared for this interview, I went back and looked at some of you know the, the, the ads from down the years. Uh, obviously, the yearly lamb ads are the ones that stick out. But for you, how is it that, M- that the MLA has, has continued to, to really always tap into the social consciousness with its advertising year in, year out with such, such consistency?
3: Yeah, it's definitely a, a responsibility when you work at MLA and, and leading the marketing team to look after Australian lamb and, and Australian beef advertising. Um, I think a couple of things. One, we, we set ourselves the task of punching above our weight uh, and, and make sure that we're spending our industry participants' levy dollars as responsibly as we can. And one way to do that is to make sure that our advertising always cuts through, it's hard-hitting, um, Lamb's always had a personality where we can be very provocative and playful with, um, and, and therefore, kind of tapping into the zeitgeist is always a core part of the the strategy, so to speak, or a key pillar. Working with great people as well, um, and having sort of long standing relationships with key agency partners always helps. Um, they've got a good understanding of the brand, the market, um, th- and we sort of have a shared. Um, responsibility to keep trying to to better ourselves year after year after year um, Australian beef over the years we've done some great work as well very memorable work but the personality of Australian beef slightly different um, it's more of the mainstream brand of the, the fresh meat category and therefore the work we do tends to be a little bit more strategic in nature uh, and therefore a little bit more functional um Whereas lamb is the one where, you know, we have one big campaign every year. We go out, we try to make news, we try to cut through, we try to be provocative. Um, whereas beef is probably more of an always on style of strategy.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I guess a lot of people would possibly uh, link a lot of that style with the personality of Andrew Howie, who, who has been gone for a few years now, but it does f- sort of feel like MLA advertising still maintains that spirit that he used to sort of speak about when he used to, you know, go on panels and talk about the importance of creativity and perhaps every now and then criticize CEOs for not being creative enough. Um, what, what's his legacy to, to MLA in your eyes?
3: Um, well, I think the legacy, whether it's Andrew Howies or anyone else who stewarded the Australian beef and the Australian lamb brands, has is, is very much been sort of having a, I guess, a good appetite for risk. You know, it's, it's smart risk, it's clever risk, um, and really dancing that, um, the dance to stay on the right side of the line, but really kind of push the needle. So, you know, you see a lot of... Um, I guess discussion right now about the importance of creativity um, and and its role as not just ensuring great advertising, but actually as a commercial driver for organisations to to drive you know higher effective share of voice or you know better return on investment. Um, and and for us, that's always been the heart of what we do. When we start building our campaigns every year, we talk about where we want to move the needle and and how we're going to make our budgets sweat as hard as they possibly can. And it always starts with doing brilliant work with our agency partners. Um, and that's something that I think that any of the previous CMOs at, um, at Meet and Livestock Australia have certainly always held close to their heart.
0: Uh, so this week we saw the release of a new animated series addressing the relationship between livestock and the environment. Um, it fits in with the Australian Good Meat platform, and, and I understand that you know that's something that you guys are working on. One Green Bean with with, with sort of relaunching. Um, what can you talk to about that?
3: Yeah, I think that sort of sits nicely alongside the work we do on the Australian beef and the Australian lamb brands, which the marketing work we do there is primarily designed to drive consumer demand for red meat. Um, The work that we're also doing with with One Green Bean on the Good Meat platform, as well as the animated series that's coming out, uh, is really more industry comms. Um, Yes, it's consumer facing, but it's more to tell the story about the great work the industry's doing, whether it's our initiatives on sustainability, our initiatives on health and nutrition, or our initiatives on animal welfare. Uh, so they're much more broader stories that aren't necessarily directly related to driving demand. Um, and you'll see some consistent ongoing work that comes out to ensure that, that consumers uh, uh, and the public are aware of, of, I guess, the great work we're doing and ensuring a balanced narrative around um, livestock farming or livestock um, meat consumption.
0: Yeah, definitely. And just moving on to the most recent uh, consumer-facing campaign for beef, the Feed Your Greatness campaign. That one featured uh, Olympian Kelsey Lee Barber as well. Um, And we wrote about the campaign in June, and and you'll probably be happy to know that last week, as the Olympics came to an end, we had a a fairly big spike in numbers of people searching for that ad and finding our story. Can you tell us a bit about the creative behind that campaign and working with, obviously, the monkeys to bring that one to life?
3: Yeah, I mean, we set the the monkeys are a pretty a pretty tall task on that one because we wanted to do something that clearly utilized our sponsorship of the Australian Olympic and Paralympic teams um, we wanted to tell a story around um, health and nutrition and the role that that beef can play and um, you know a healthy balanced diet uh, and linking it to i guess how it fuels high performance and athletes that, that choose to eat a diet that's, that's heavy in beef, um, but also in a way that didn't feel forced, you know, that felt very authentic as well as actually continued um, sort of utilising that per- personality of beef where we still tend to, to like to be playful. We like to um, ensure that we continue to use humour as well. Uh, that's a pretty tough task. There's a lot of jobs to be done in there. Um, and to do something that wasn't, um, I guess, the traditional talking head sports star endorsement style of campaign. Um, so it was we had two goes at it <laughs> with the Olympics being postponed in 2020. Um, and, and at that time we weren't working with Kelsey. Kelsey was um, someone that came on our radar this year that we felt felt was um, a good face for the brand, you know not someone who was overly well known. Um, that wasn't going to be featuring in a a large number of ads, but someone who had a really interesting story as an existing world champion in a sport that's not super high profile. Um, So we thought she would be interesting to people um, and equally, um, you know, as a fan of of beef and her diet and um, someone who had a good sense of humour felt like the right type of person to partner with us on this campaign.
0: Yeah. And that ad sits as well within a, a wider content series featuring other Olympians and that sort of thing. Can you sort of talk about how that wider content series has played out during uh, the Olympics and, and also, um, you know, looking at how those campaigns have performed on your end as well more broadly?
3: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, COVID certainly impacted the way we initially intended to roll this campaign out. Um, so the content series, um sort of sat more neatly in the 2020 campaign and not our 2021 campaign um, and was part of a, a broader set of activity leveraging the sponsorship of the Olympic team. So that content series is more telling the story of the greatness behind the greatness of these athletes um, and actually featuring a number of athletes that also have links to um, cattle farming Um so they have a history in the not all of them, but many of them had a history in the industry. So whether we're talking someone like uh, Paralympian Scott Reardon um, or Rugby Sevens player Lewis Holland, um, who come from cattle farming backgrounds. Uh, so that was more of our community-style messaging, uh, long format, uh, telling a story of the role the industry has played in their life, um, but also talking about the importance of diet to fuel their elite performance. Uh, so that, that we've pushed through. Um, you know traditional social channels uh, as well as sort of our owned channels as well um, that really dive deeper I guess into the human stories um, and leveraged on I guess a broader scale as well as we then used a lot of those athletes through our schools programs which is all about encouraging primary school children to eat um, you know healthy nutritious balanced diets Um, so it goes well beyond just I guess you know the traditional advertising campaign that that you would have seen on quite heavy rotation on Channel Seven during the Olympics.
0: Yeah, and I, I guess this is something that's a bit broader. But what what makes the Olympics such a great thing to be able to tap into uh, f- for you guys and and you know the advertising industry, I guess in general.
3: Yeah, I guess for us it was it was multi layered um, because whilst we have our consumer facing brand platforms. Um, we do also have strong community engagement platforms like I I just mentioned before in our schools program etc as well as basically connecting our industry um, to interesting people who have interesting stories to tell that we can learn from whether that's just purely learning from high performance or about resilience or about goal setting and um, so there's also sort of corporate development opportunities that come with a sponsorship for sponsoring an organisation like the Australian Olympic team. Um, So we definitely sort of took a a three-pronged approach from a corporate to a community to a consumer-facing comms perspective. The other bit was wanting to tell an authentic story about the role beef plays in in a healthy diet. Um, And elite athletes have to perform at a high level. So if they're consuming beef as part of their diet, it's a very highly relevant and highly authentic way to reinforce the nutritional credentials of Australian beef in their diet.
0: And yeah, and beyond beef and and this is something that you sort of spoke about before the the, the importance of having those different voices with beef and lamb. Um, I, I just wanted to reflect back on the lamb campaign from the start of the year, which um, sort of ties into what we were talking about earlier in terms of the, you know capturing that political sentiment of the time in a cheeky way. Obviously, with Australia back in lockdown largely at the moment, at the time that campaign ran, it sort of felt like lockdowns might have been in the past for us. How do you reflect back on that campaign? And do you think it would work as well right now?
3: Um, Well, we certainly feel a bit Groundhog Day right now. Um, It feels like border closures are potentially not as high profile as they were when we launched that campaign. Um, and, and that was the thing we were really trying to highlight, felt slightly un-Australian. You know, and lamb is the brand that brings people together. We weren't really making fun of COVID per se. We were making fun of, we're all Australians, we should be in this together. The idea of separated states as their own nations and border closures seems slightly ridiculous. Um, I don't know that that would hit us hard right now. I think we've moved beyond that um however what would stay the same and obviously we're working on our 2022 um lamb campaign right now is we would still choose to lean in uh, it felt like a lot of marketers and brands were staying away from overtly talking about covid um and i think the, the brave choice we made at the time was to lean into it um and find a way to talk about it that was that that captured the right tone um and so yes we probably wouldn't land the same campaign right now but we would still choose to lean into what's happening and find a uniquely australian lamb way of of telling the story
0: yeah and do you think that the environment the way it is at the moment especially the last 18 months means you guys have to or i guess creative in general has to be able to uh pivot possibly um, and be more, more, more flexible than, than previously because, you know, as we, sp- we just spoke about, the political sentiment right now is not the same as six months ago and it might not be the same in another
3: six months. Yeah, look, you absolutely have to remain agile and, and, and we certainly were when we were developing that campaign. I mean, we had a number of options. The scripts went through a number of iterations and we were changing things right up until shoot day. Uh, and then we were probably still changing things in post to make sure that they were as relevant as they possibly could. Um, closer to campaign launch. Now, what we what we couldn't have anticipated is that the week before the campaign went to air, the prime minister would go on holiday, um, and we couldn't have also predicted that um, the country would go back into lockdown at Christmas time, which made border closures kind of very topical and very relevant as the campaign launched. Um, but definitely, we take a very flexible and um, I guess, agile approach to how we do it. Otherwise, it's impossible to capture. You can't capture the Zeitgeist six months out. That's the conversations we're having now is how do we know what's going to be relevant in January when this campaign drops? But we try to find something that's authentic for the brand to talk about. And we try to tap into something where we think at least the insight will be relevant and the people will get it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And looking to the future, you know, there are all sorts of things. We talk about lockdowns, other things that... That, that MLA has to tackle when when creating campaigns and, and and working with stakeholders and that sort of thing. And one of those things is, you know, I, now the plant-based meat movement. How will you look to tackle that challenge moving forward? And and do you view that as, you know, like a serious competitor that you have to really give a lot of heed to?
3: Uh, I think, look, there's certainly a lot of noise uh, and, and we are seeing people's diets evolve. But the reality is... Um, the, plant, the plant-based the plant segment within the fresh meat category is less than 1% share. So it would not be smart strategy for me right now to build a strategy around tackling the growth of plant-based meat. Um, but we do know that basically human demand for protein will continue to increase and there's room for all of us to play. What we're doing is just making sure that consumers are able to make fact-based choices um, and that some of the noise that's being created to promote brands in the plant-based space, um, which let's just call it marketing, um, and is putting some very aggressive claims out there is not necessarily always uh, as factually sound as we would like it to be. So our job is just to tell people the great stories of why you should consume Australian lamb, Australian beef, the role it plays in their diet, um the beauty of the different cuts right through the um the sort of price tier you know if you want a delicious expensive steak you can but equally you can feed your family very affordably um with a mince dish etc um so we have a number of streams of work that we do um and it's probably no surprise that we've chosen to come out with the olympics with a campaign that's all about the role of of beef in a in a healthy balanced diet
0: Great. Well, it looks like really exciting times for the industry moving forward, whether we're in or out of lockdown. Nathan, so thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: And that's it for this week. But before we go... If you work in the publishing industry, be sure to tune in to the Virtual Mumbrella Publish Awards on September 9 to see who takes out the industry's most prestigious accolades of the year. With categories spanning digital, print, sales, podcasting, journalism, marketing, and more, make sure you join us in celebrating the industry's remarkable achievements. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash publish awards to register for your e-ticket now.
2: That is it for this week, though. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform so you know when new Mumbrella casts come out. But in the meantime, big thank you to Xander, Callum and Liv for joining me this week.
1: Thank you, Damien. Thank
2: Thank you. Thank you.